This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Thursday, November 16th. On the pod today, there are reports Gaza is in a communications blackout, cut off from the rest of the world as fuel runs out and Israel presses on with its assault. We get the latest on that situation from the International Committee of the Red Cross. Then, Saskatchewan follows through on its threat and tables a bill to stop collecting the federal carbon tax. The province faces legal consequences if it passes. We'll speak to the minister responsible who admits he's retained a lawyer. Plus, Finance Minister Christian Freeland says she's committed to striking the right balance in next week's fall economic statement. The power panel on what that might look like. We begin in Gaza, where communications appear to have collapsed as fuel in the region runs dry. Israeli military remains inside Gaza's largest hospital, where it believes Hamas operates a command center. The few other hospitals still running are beginning to shut down. A warning, this video we're about to show you contains disturbing images. This is footage obtained by Reuters inside Gaza's Indonesia hospital. The hospital's chief says 45 patients who urgently need surgery have been left in the reception area after the facility lost the capacity to operate. The United Nations estimates one in every 57 people living in Gaza has been killed or wounded in the last five weeks. Never in my career working in many crisis situations around the world have I met such an outpouring of fear, anger, and despair. The people of Gaza, who for years have been profoundly impoverished behind barbed wire fences, are enduring bombardment by the Israeli security forces of an intensity rarely experienced in this century. For the latest on this war and the unfolding humanitarian crisis, we're joined by the CBC's Ellen Morrow. She's in Jerusalem. So, Ellen, a lot of focus on Al-Shifa Hospital. What's the latest you're hearing from there? Well, we heard from the Israel Defense Forces tonight, uh, David, in an update saying that it found what it described as an operational tunnel shaft at Al-Shifa Hospital and a vehicle that was booby-trapped and had a large amount of weapons in it, according to the IDF. Now, the IDF saying that it found this entrance to a tunnel comes after Israel for the last several weeks has been saying that Hamas operates a headquarters in tunnels underneath Al-Shifa. We don't know what's inside that tunnel. We can't verify those claims, but that's what we're hearing from the IDF tonight. Uh, Last night, we had the first videos uh, from the IDF showing weapons, the military says, inside uh, Al-Shifa Hospital. Hamas put out another statement today saying that it does not uh, use the hospital as a base. Um, We're hearing from the director of Al-Shifa as well. It's very hard uh, to get calls into him. We've tried ourselves over over the past few days, um, but he did manage to give a few uh, interviews today talking about the humanitarian situation there, which has been uh, so dire. Um, He's saying that patients are now screaming for thirst, saying there's no oxygen uh, in the hospital. There's reportedly been uh, talks about trying to evacuate the people who remain uh, in Al-Shifa Hospital. Doctors there say there are still hundreds of people inside the facility, but it's unclear if that will happen. The IDF says that its search at the hospital will continue, that soldiers are going building to building, and this is a large uh, complex. Important to keep that in mind. We also had another update from the IDF saying that it found the body of one of the hostages near the hospital, the body of a 65-year-old grandmother named Yehudit Weiss, which was a sad update from the IDF tonight. 
Okay, so the remains of one of the missing hospitals found another death toll uh, from the October 7th attacks, but there are ongoing efforts to secure more than 200 hostages taken by Hamas, the other hostages, in the raid of Israel last month. So, Ellen, where do things stand on that? Well, important to say, David, there's been a lot of reporting about possible deals that haven't actually come through. But the latest reporting is coming from the Washington Post. Uh, it's citing an unnamed uh, Arab official familiar with the negotiations that says that Hamas has agreed in principle uh, to a deal to release 50 hostages, women and children, uh, in exchange for a three to five day pause in the fighting, uh, an increase in humanitarian aid and the release of an unspecified number of women women and children who are being held in Israeli prison. So some specific terms there, according to the reporting, the reporting says that Israel has not yet agreed to this possible deal. Now, again, there has been reporting like this in the past. There hasn't been any major deal that's come through. Um, we did hear from Joe Biden, though, uh, yesterday on this, expressing some mild optimism that there could be a breakthrough. We know the U.S. is heavily involved uh, in these negotiations. Well, we can also say is that there is growing pressure uh, in Israel every day the hostages remain uh, being held by Hamas. There's so much anguish here over their fate. There's currently a five-day march going on. Families of the hostages left Tel Aviv several days ago. They will arrive at the Jerusalem office of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Saturday, trying to keep the pressure on the Israeli government to do whatever it can to get the hostages back. Ellen, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Ellen Morrow in Jerusalem. Ghassan Abu Sitta is a doctor in Gaza who we've been in touch with throughout this war. He says he was forced to flee Ali Arab Hospital today, and he sent us this voice note before communications to the region were cut off. We evacuated this morning. Um, the operating room was no longer functionable. We ran out of everything by the, the early hours of this morning, and we were no longer able to provide that service. The bombing was so close to the hospital, it was obvious that the tanks were heading in that direction. And so we went and we walked all the way to central Gaza. For more on this, we're joined by Patrick Hamilton. He's the head of the Washington delegation for the International Committee of the Red Cross. Uh, Patrick, it's good to speak with you. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, David. Great to be with you. You've heard there in our updates, the director of the Indonesian hospital said today that all hospitals in Gaza City and the north have stopped operating. Ghassan Abu Sida, a doctor there at Al-Ali, um, with the connection now lost, the, the communications connections. What do you know uh, about the situation inside Gaza? Very much in line with what you've heard described. We have 130 uh, colleagues uh, working in Gaza. They've been there since before October 7th. Uh, and uh, they've equally been confronted by uh, what's been a, a, a very seriously escalating situation there with uh, the military operations that have been taking place across the last five weeks uh, and uh, needs that are escalating incredibly quickly uh, with a deterioration in the essential infrastructure there the hospitals, the water, the fuel, the electricity, uh, the lack of food. Uh, people are, huge numbers of people have been displaced, uh, over 650,000 people uh, in one of the most densely uh, populated places in the world, 2.2 million people in, in Gaza altogether. Many of them have had to move down uh, to leave their homes. They have no shelter. Uh, they, they have a lack of access to the basics. Uh, and as we see this public infrastructure, such as the hospitals failing, um, they are in huge need. 
Uh, and at the same time, uh, we are more and more constrained in our ability to actually uh, serve those needs in, in the ways that we would like to be able to. In normal times, I, I believe there's about 38 hospitals in, in all of Gaza. Uh, the last number I saw before the shutdowns we've seen in the last 24 hours is about 27, 28 of them were non-operational. Have you got a sense of how many hospitals are even functioning at this point? It must be down into the single digits by now. Yeah, exactly. No, not uh, also because a the communications has become uh, so problematic uh, that it's difficult to maintain the contacts that we uh, have been uh, used to until now, and because we're not able uh, to move around uh, inside Gaza in the way that we'd be like that we would like to be able to even in southern Gaza, and so our ability to really get a clear picture of exactly where things are at uh, is extremely limited. Uh, but yeah, as you say, I think we're probably down to, to a handful of functioning uh, hospital structures. And we are currently operating out of uh, the European Gaza Hospital down in Rafa um, uh, and have been able to carry out some 200 procedures in the course of the last week since our surgical team has been there. Um, but they have also been experiencing major shortages in, in terms of equipment as well uh, and really human uh, tragedy uh, you know, uh, coming into them and, and, and passing in front of their eyes over the course of that week as well. So it's it's a very, very challenging situation. Do you, do you still have contact with your team at the European Hospital today? Or is that, uh, I know Rafa is a little bit easier to get communication with because of its proximity to Egypt, uh, but are they giving you any current real-time updates on the situation there? Uh, so, I mean, it has been a bit easier with them, but I mean, the communication across the strip is sporadic and, and of course that makes things more challenging. Uh, they've been indeed communicating uh, considerably about what it is that they have been observing uh, and the fact that uh, all too often they're dealing with people with severe burns, they're having a lot of children come through, they're seeing children that uh, even once they're treated have no family to go back to because their families will, uh, family, the other family members have all been killed. Patients, uh, when they come to the end of their their, their treatment um, with us uh, then have nowhere to go uh, because their homes have been destroyed or they are unable to go back to the areas that they are from and therefore they are simply camping out in the in the hospitals uh, with with uh, no other shelter to, to take on so it's really a, 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 a terrible situation that, that, that's, that's that's occurring in front of us for, for the last several weeks the Israel Defense Forces have been telling people to leave northern Gaza to go to southern Gaza um, we had a spokesperson on the show last night who said the south is safer not safe, uh, an important distinction there. But now uh, we've seen reports that the IDF is dropping leaflets in the southern parts of Gaza and Khan Yunus and other settlements there, telling people to leave their homes immediately. Is there anywhere for anybody to go right now? I, I know they're saying patients can transfer out of the hospitals in the north. It doesn't sound like there's surplus medical capacity in the south or anywhere inside the Gaza Strip. Is there even space for non-injured people to seek refuge and shelter right now? No, I mean, we uh, know that there are an awful lot of people that are having to simply uh, sleep out on on the streets in southern Gaza. And indeed, as you say, uh, we've been seeing ongoing hostilities, ongoing strikes taking place in, in southern Gaza uh, across the last five weeks, uh, continuing uh, across this week as well. So, as you say, there's... There is nowhere that is, is genuinely safe uh, in Gaza today. Uh, and so uh, we've been 
continuing to call uh, across the, the, the five weeks for there to be a full respect of international humanitarian law, the laws of armed conflict, and for there to be uh, yet more consideration paid to the needs uh, and lives of, of civilians in this context uh, from all of the parties to the conflict. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's an impossible scenario for, for the civilians that are caught up in this. So, so we still have no clear insight as to how many hospitals are actually still operating uh, inside Gaza and the communications have been cut off. It's after midnight there right now. Uh, if you are able to reestablish connection uh, with your teams uh, tomorrow, what are you expecting to hear? A bit more of the same, really, that they will have seen yet, yet more uh, human tragedies uh, passing in front of them, yet more patients uh, coming in with, with terrible injuries, uh, their difficulties to be able to treat them because they've run out of some of the products that they need to be able to do that well, like gauzes, like uh, 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 um, anesthetic uh, equipment and, and, and their uh, need to receive replenishment of those materials. And indeed, I mean, we've been hearing very much from the hospitals across the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, that you know, you've got doctors treating doctors. That the the the, the, the staff working in these hospitals uh, have been working relentlessly across the five weeks, twenty four seven. Everybody's exhausted, uh, and 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 it's just an impossible situation with these hospitals filled with people desperately trying to find shelter, uh, but with nowhere genuinely safe to go today. Um, so again, an appeal to to those uh, involved, the parties participating in the, uh, these hostilities, to try and uh, uh, ensure that there are, is respite uh, for these civilians, and that there are pauses that are implemented as soon as possible to allow us as humanitarian actors to be able to uh, move around uh, more fulsomely, to be able to restock with uh, a, a more unconstrained flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza, uh, but also for the civilians themselves to have some respite uh, for some hours uh, at very least and to be able to uh, have a better access to the basics and the essentials that they need to, to survive quite simply. All right, Patrick Hamilton, uh, head of the Washington delegation for the International Committee of the Red Cross. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, David. Much appreciated. Thank you, sir. Okay, so for some more perspective on this uh, situation in Gaza, I want to bring in Omar Shaker. Uh, he is the Israel-Palestine Director at Human Rights Watch. Omar, it's good to speak with you again. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I want to start with the videos we've seen from the Israel Defense Forces released yesterday and again today, uh, showing what they say they found inside Al Shifa Hospital, showing a series of guns, computers, uh, some bulletproof vests, RPGs. I mean, this is their justification for going into the hospital. What's Human Rights Watch's view on what you've seen from the IDF so far? Look, Human Rights Watch cannot cooperate at this time, uh, the Israeli government's allegations. Um, Human Rights Watch published earlier this week research about several attacks on hospitals where we reviewed the evidence the Israeli government put forward and found that nothing that was provided justified stripping hospitals of the special protections they have under international humanitarian law. International humanitarian law is clear that doctors, medical workers, ambulances, medical transport must always be protected and allowed to do their work. Uh, that protection only goes away when acts harmful to the enemy are committed from them. If that's done, obviously that is a, uh, that's unlawful. Uh, but we didn't find any evidence to substantiate that. And even if the Israeli government's evidence is accurate, hospital attacks can only be justified when there is provision for safe evacuation of doctors and patients. Mm. But that's not possible today in Gaza because there is no safe place to go in Gaza and no reliably secure way to get anywhere. And even again, if 
that was secured. International humanitarian law does not allow treating hospitals as free fire zones. People continue to have the protections against unlawfully indiscriminate attacks and disproportionate attacks. And these were in disproportionate attacks are at high risk at hospitals right. because even a relatively minor operation can affect life-saving operations. So I, I don't know if there was an actual firefight inside the hospital. Certainly the IDF says there wasn't. They fought some people on the outskirts, but they have turned up a number of guns and other weapons. Are, are, you, are you saying that the presence of weapons alone at the hospital doesn't meet the threshold required under international law? What I'm saying is we can't corroborate those allegations. We have no way we've been studying the video footage. We have no way of knowing, um, you know, whether those guns were there when they entered, you know, whether there actually was an operation there, to what extent it was there. We study all the evidence the Israeli government is putting forward. We have not reviewed the most recent uh, footage. But what I can say with confidence is that the hospital strikes we investigated at Human Rights Watch, we found that there was nothing there that would justify attacking Gaza hospitals. The Shifa allegate information is still coming out. It's too early to make a determination. But let's remember that hospitals have special protections, and there's a very high threshold under international law to attack a hospital. And even if those guns were there and there was that would be unlawful, but it wouldn't justify attacking the hospital if there wasn't a safe way to evacuate the population. And it would still be unlawful if the strike was disproportionate or indiscriminate. The, the, the latest we've heard from our reporter, Ellen Mora, who's in Jerusalem, is the IDF claims to have found a, a tunnel entrance. Um, you'll recall that a few weeks back they put out intelligence, a video based on Israeli intelligence, uh, that there was a tunnel and subterranean command structure underneath Al-Shifa. So not necessarily in the hospital itself, but in the ground underneath it where it would be a shield above. Does that, if, if Israel finds that, and if they can conclusively prove that such a subterranean structure exists under the hospital, does that take away the protected status? Because uh, it's not technically inside the hospital, it's beneath it. Look, I think we have to wait to see what the facts are. It's hard to speculate. There are tunnels all around Gaza. If there's just a tunnel that's incidentally connected through the hospital, that's one thing. Obviously, if there is a very sophisticated base of operations there, that would be a different story. The test under international humanitarian law is acts harmful to the enemy. And that is a very high bar. And it wouldn't be enough to show one, you know, one tunnel incidentally connected to the hospital. You'd have to have a much higher threshold of showing that acts harmful to the enemy have been committed. And let's remember, this is not happening in isolation. The Israeli government has a long track record of attacking civilian objects, unlawful strikes. We've documented them over many rounds of hostilities. So there are reason to be skeptical of the Israeli government's evidence, particularly given the really high threshold the law sets to justify what is really should be a very last resort, which is to evacuate or attack hospitals. We've seen the Biden administration today uh, call for Israel to take greater care in the protection of civilians. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau this week said Israel should exercise maximum restraint. And we've seen the United Nations now approving a resolution calling for a humanitarian pause. The United States and the United Kingdom both abstained despite their, their veto power. The first time uh, the U.S. has abstained. The last time they, they vetoed against. This is also the first U.N. resolution on the Israel-Palestine conflict since 2016. What do you make of this development? What does this mean for Israel and the possibility of some sort of a humanitarian pause there? 
Look, it's a major step forward. Uh, the paralysis at the UN Security Council as a result of the United States shielding Israel from any scrutiny has really turned it into a body incapable of doing what it was created to do, which was precisely to help in situations of armed conflict like this to minimize the harm to civilians. I think this resolution is an important step. It sends a very clear signal to the Israeli government that even its closest allies are greatly concerned uh, on the toll for civilians as bodies can continue to pile up every single day in the hundreds. Um, it's significant that the U.S. statement also made clear that they agreed with the thrust of the revol re resolution, even if they ultimately abstained from it. This is a legally binding resolution. Ultimately, it's up to the Security Council. The United States is one of its uh, you know, key members to ensure that the Israeli government and Palestinian armed groups who are also called for to release those who are held hostage comply with its terms. It was uh, Trudeau's statement was very welcome. Ultimately, we have to be consistent here, whether it's Israel, whether it's Palestinian armed groups, we need to condemn and states should condemn war crimes, whoever commits them. They should call for accountability. They should ensure civilians are not punished for the actions of combatants. And they need to ensure that action is taken to prevent mass atrocities. Omar Shakur, the Israel-Palestine director at Human Rights Watch. Thank you for joining us again today. Thank you. The Saskatchewan government has introduced a new law to stop collecting the carbon tax on natural gas. The province says this, will, this change will save families about $400 a year. Now, if it passes, the bill puts the onus on the federal government to collect the tax. It would also shield employees of Sask Energy from any legal liability connected to withholding it. Dustin Duncan is the minister responsible for Sask Energy, and he joins us now. So, Minister, when Premier Scott Moe first floated this idea, he acknowledged it might be illegal. So does this legislation take Sask Energy off the hook for breaking the law and put you on the hook because you're basically seeking to transfer legal liability here? That's certainly what the intent is. I don't want to put uh, the women and men that work at Sask Energy, that serve on the board, uh, that do a great job each and every day for the people of Saskatchewan. I don't want to put them in a position where they have to potentially face the consequences of an action that I wouldn't be willing to take on my own. And so what this does is shift that obligation, that uh, responsibility of uh, collecting and remitting uh, the carbon tax um, from them to me. Um, and also provides indemnification in the event that the federal government does decide to pursue further action. So, so Minister, I'm not a lawyer, but it seems to me that you might not be able to do this, right? Because the responsibility for collecting the carbon tax is spelled out in federal legislation, and a provincial legislature has no authority to rewrite federal law or give someone immunity from federal law. So how, how do you expect this to stand any kind of a court challenge? Well, certainly what we are doing with this uh, legislation is for that very narrow section of the Greenhouse Gas and Pollution, Pollution Pricing Act uh, is to essentially shift the obligation, the responsibility to collect and remit um, from Sask Energy to the government, uh, to myself as the minister responsible. Ultimately, it will be up to the federal government to decide uh, how they will react to this. Certainly, uh, the way that we want the federal government to react uh, to the entire matter of the carbon tax is to do what they've done for Atlantic Canada uh, and to uh, exempt all forms of heating uh, for all Canadians, including people in Saskatchewan. Uh, that's certainly what we hope uh, the federal government will do, provide a carve-out for the rest of us. Uh, in the meantime, if they don't, we want 
want to shift the uh, uh, essentially the obligation or the burden from those people that work at Sask Energy that do a great job each and every day onto the government so that if we do in fact decide not to remit the carbon tax that ultimately that would be a government decision and so it would be the government that should be responsible for that and me as the minister and not the people that work at Sask Energy. But Minister, have you had this uh, piece of legislation charter tested by your lawyers in the Justice Department because the principle of paramountcy seems like it would come into play here uh, and, and a provincial legislature cannot rewrite the terms of federal legislation. It seems like I don't know what authority you would have to do this, as much as I understand your intent. Well, certainly as the uh, shareholder, the government of Saskatchewan, we are responsible for, responsible for Sask Energy. Uh, the people of the province own this Crown Corporation. Uh, so we have amended the Sask Energy Act, the carbon tax Fairness for Families Amendment uh, was introduced today. Uh, the intent of that is for that very narrow section of the Federal Act that that obligation would shift from Sask Energy to the government, to myself as the minister. Uh, the federal government will do what they will with that uh, act once it does become law, assuming it's going to pass through the legislature, which I assume it will do. Uh, the intent of this is twofold. One is to shift that obligation to the government so that if we decide not to remit, that's our decision, and frankly, it should be our consequences to bear, not the people that work at Sask Energy, uh, but mainly to um, bring attention to this issue again to the federal government. What they've done for Atlanta to Canada should be extended to the rest of Canada, including Saskatchewanians who are going to be heating their homes this winter. The snow is already on the ground here in Saskatchewan. We just want that fairness for all Canadians, all Saskatchewanians, that has already been extended uh, to people in Atlantic Canada. Well, I, I take your point that the oil carve-out does benefit uh, Atlantic Canada disproportionately, but it does apply to anyone who burns oil right across the country. So, so it is an act, but I, I take your point that it is regionally uh, weighted. But, but by doing this, if you don't collect the tax, the Saskatchewan government will still have to pay the federal government the value of what would have been collected, right? You still have to send federal taxes to the federal government. So aren't you just transferring the, the, li the cash liability away from the people who burn natural gas to all taxpayers in Saskatchewan by doing this? Well, potentially. It will depend, first and foremost, whether or not the federal government extends this to the rest of Canada, including Saskatchewan. 0.4% of Saskatchewan residents burn heating fuel uh, to heat their homes. The vast majority of residents are on natural gas, uh, which, by the way, was a decision that was made in the 1980s, and it was a very costly decision. The rural gasification program of the 1980s in today's dollars would be well over half a billion dollars. And so we shouldn't be penalized for making good decisions that we did as a province nearly 40 years ago. Uh, so the federal government can make the change, but ultimately when we uh, come to the point where in on January 1, when we stop collecting, and then ultimately when we get to February, that would be the next period of time where we would have to remit. Uh, we as a government will make the decision whether or not we will remit at that point based on, uh, I would say, a response from the federal government, uh, and then we will we'll go from there. Your government said today that this would save a family of four that burns natural gas about $400 a year. Uh, but Sask Energy, um, their website estimates that the federal carbon tax only adds about $238.50 to an annual residential gas bill. So there's a gap there. But either way, we're talking 20 to $30 a month for a family of four. Is that kind of cost savings really worth the legal jeopardy you might be taking on here? 
Well, we do want to provide affordability relief to the people of Saskatchewan. Uh, certainly with the cost escalation of the carbon tax, that dollar amount for each family, the average family in Saskatchewan, is going to increase. And so we estimate for the year upcoming it would be about $400 per year for the average family. Uh, but this is really about a bigger principle. This is about extending fairness to all Canadians, including people here in Saskatchewan. Uh, the Prime Minister has uh, made the decision to opt out part of the country uh, for, for a variety of reasons. We want that. Uh, to be extended to the rest of Canada, including Saskatchewan, so that this policy is enacted fair. Remember that part of the Supreme Court decision in ruling for the federal government and against the provinces, including Saskatchewan, at the Supreme Court was the issue around ensuring that uh, opting out one province or a region of the country could undermine the work of the other provinces or the nation as a whole. That was one of the reasons why the carbon tax uh, was uh, allowed to go forward by the Supreme Court. The, the federal government, the Prime Minister, has basically taken that away. We just want fairness that is being offered uh, in, in one region of the country. Right. I, I don't want to be a broken record, but they've carved out one type of fuel. Uh, there are actually more people in Ontario and other parts of the country than in Atlantic Canada who will qualify for this. Uh, it's just important to, to, to put that out there. But if you don't collect the tax and you don't pay Ottawa what, what Saskatchewan would owe, then presumably the federal carbon tax rebates for Saskatchewan families would go down. That's what's going to happen in Atlantic Canada. They get the carve out so the rebates get reduced. Have you done the math uh, on whether most people will be better off in, in having the carbon tax withheld or with a reduced uh, rebate? Yeah, so this is, uh, this is one area that obviously we, we have taken a look at. Um, but again, this goes back to the principle of the carbon tax. The carbon tax was uh, in brought into this country because it was going to apply fairly across the country, even though we disagreed with the policy decision of the federal government, we have been collecting and remitting the carbon tax uh, because of the uh, equal application across the country. The federal government themselves have undermined that argument, and so we just want to be treated like the rest of the country. Uh, and uh, a number of premiers have joined with Premier Mo in calling for the federal government to do this. Uh, certainly this has been discussed for a number of weeks now that this is really undermining the case that the federal government put in place for the carbon tax. So again, this is more about uh, wanting to ensure that there is fairness for all Canadians, including the people of Saskatchewan. Okay, because so it's more about the political fight and the principled fight against the carbon tax and affordability? Because I know there have been calls for you to reduce, for example, the provincial gas tax to give people a break there, which other provinces like Ontario have done. And so far you haven't done to this point. So there are affordability options for you beyond this sort of legally contentious one. Well, there are, but again, this is about fairness, but uh, this in and of itself would uh, likely provide for the average household in Saskatchewan more relief than, say, doing something on the fuel tax. And so uh, this is uh, what we've moved forward with, uh, introduced the bill today, and uh, hope it gets speedy passage through the House. Okay, uh, Dustin Duncan, uh, the Minister responsible for Sask Energy, we appreciate you taking the time. I know you said today you were willing to go to the jail if, the, if it called for it. I hope that doesn't happen, uh, but we'll have you back uh, down the road when we get closer to a decision point of this. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks. Finance Minister Christian Freeland says striking the right balance on fiscal policy is challenging at a time when interest rates are elevated and at a time when the affordability challenge for Canadians is very much connected with those elevated interest rates. 
it's a hard balance to strike. Um, having making the necessary investments on one hand, supporting Canadians as we need to do, and at the same time being fiscally responsible. But it's a balance that we're committed to striking. Okay, we'll see how she'll strike that balance on Tuesday when uh, Christopher Freeland will table the fall economic statement and uh, we'll have a look at the politics around this fiscal plan. We're going to bring in the power panel. Sapria Devetti is back with us. She is the director of policy at McGill Center for Media, Technology and Democracy. James Moore is here. He's a senior advisor at Denton's and a former conservative cabinet minister. Andrew Thompson is a former Saskatchewan NDP cabinet minister, now chief of government relations at the University of Toronto. And the CBC's Jason Markasoff is making a Thursday appearance with us. Well, Sapria, first, uh, let's start with you. Given the slew of these housing announcements we've seen over the last few months, including $1.2 billion in low-interest loans for rental construction in Toronto, $228 million from the Housing Accelerator Fund in Calgary, do we expect to see even more spending in next week's statement with the, the Deputy Prime Minister talking about striking a balance? I mean, you heard her. I think there's going to be somewhat of a balance there, but I think it's clear that particularly on the housing uh, file in front, we're going to see, at least I hope to see, um, more investments, um, particularly given that you know, my generation and those that are younger uh, than me really can't get into the housing market um, if you're not the descendants of folks who own housing and can uh, spare you cash for a down payment. I don't think that's a place where any society wants to be. Um, You couple that with the fact that even rents are very high and very hard to come by. And in some provinces, like here in Ontario, um, it was exacerbated and made worse by the fact that when the Ford government was uh, elected back in 2018, one of the first things they did was to scrap rent control on uh, on, on new builds. And so we have a situation where a lot of folks for quite some time have been ringing the bell on, on housing and uh, affordability more, more generally. Um, but a lot of those concerns were poo-pooed by the masses by telling my generation to eat less avocado toast. Um, and now it turns out that when you get kids into their you know, 30s still living in your basement, then all people tend to care about housing a little bit more. You know, James, uh, they, they, they are committed or talking about doing something on housing, uh, maybe some measures on affordability, but there's also been a lot of talk from this government about the need to sort of bend financial, the financial track back to a more sustainable path because of high interest rates and all of these things. We've heard that before, and there's always a pile of new spending that kind of follows that. I mean, can they do that this time, or do they really need to, to make a dent in, in the long-term deficits? I'm not sure how much more we can afford all these affordability measures. Um, you know, you look at the parliamentary budget officer uh, report that came out. You know, we're spending almost a billion dollars a week, a billion dollars every seven days, just in servicing the debt of this country. The deficit is likely to be over fifty billion dollars next next uh, week as well. So we're on a track to utter fiscal ruin if we don't get this done right. The Minister Freeland is correct in the opening uh, buffer clip that you had there where she said that balancing the budget is a difficult challenge. She's right. Uh, you know, I, I wish that those comments had been, we can get into a DeLorean and reflect those back to 2015, Justin Trudeau, when he said balancing the budget is easy, uh, because it's not. It takes due diligence. It takes responsibility. It takes cabinet ministers committed to their jobs and knowing their portfolios. It took someone like Jim Flaherty and Stephen Harper in, in government to, to do the things that we did that were 
that painstaking, labor-intensive, but utterly necessary and responsible for a functioning government to make sure that your debits and credits match up, you can, you can get back to fiscal sanity so that you can afford the kind of social programs and affordability measures that we can afford that Canadians need. And we're nowhere near that balance uh, in terms of uh, fiscal uh, probity that is necessary for a country like ours. So, Andrew, as a former finance minister, how do you challenge this, right? You've got high interest rates. You have a deficit that is up because of all the extra spending and slump uh, the economic uh, uh, downturn that we're experiencing. But there's still, as Supriya laid out, all these demands from, a, from an angry and jittery Canadian uh, public out there. Yeah, I mean, to start with, I would hop in that DeLorean with James and go back to 2015 to refight that if I could, uh, for sure. Because I know <laughs> that was certainly the message Mulcair and I were carrying uh, back in the days. And the Liberals were saying they were going to run very small, very responsible deficits. Uh, of course, we all know what the story is since then. I think that the, the challenge that the minister has, listening to her um, her statement today, is it's not clear there's any audience for it. Uh, you have a number of Canadians, as Apriya laid out, I think a very uh, compelling argument of why people want to see more measures uh, in terms of spending, why they want to see those affordability measures in, why they want to see the housing uh, measures brought in. And, of course, there's a number of other demands on the federal treasury. Uh, James, on the other hand, represents a camp that uh, would like to see more austerity and like to see a government uh, rein in its spending. For Freeland to try and find a camp in between or the Liberals to try and find a camp in between, I think it's going to be really difficult for them. And uh, what I'm surprised she's not doing is kind of uh, putting out more messaging that says, look, uh, you know, the spending will be there to make sure Canadians get what they need. We'll continue to mind the, uh, mind the books as best we can in terms of the debt-to-GDP ratio, but that uh, you know, the programs that are announced are the ones that we're committed to. I'm not expecting there'll be a lot more uh, brought forward in the in the fall economic statement. I mean, there may be some, but uh, certainly the ramp up of announcements show that the government is, you know, uh, pedal to the metal in terms of uh, making sure that they are getting these uh, these dollars out the door. Uh, Jason, I don't know if that was Daniel Smith or someone trying to come in there behind you to, to voice some <laughs> objection to the federal plans. But, you know, we have seen them say that they're talking about legislation to stop the federal government from working with municipalities on things like the housing accelerator deals. Uh, do you expect to see more pushback from, from governments like Alberta if they get more committed and aggressive on that front? I mean, I, I don't think there's a day where I don't expect more uh, pushback from provinces like the government of Alberta, and we'll talk about what Saskatchewan is doing uh, in the next section. I mean, this is the this is the challenge that this uh, federal government faces. They face so many different pressures from so many different places. Um, there is the expectation to uh, improve housing. Um, also, uh, in that event, uh, Christopher Freeland talked about supply, 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 and um, housing. Stoking housing supply uh, is not free. Uh, for governments, so that will cost them money. Um, there's the pressure from the NDP on a pharmacare um, plan. Um, pharmacare, again, publicly covered uh, pharmaceuticals, are they cost money? Not a likelihood. Um, pressures from uh, conservatives and even people, uh, you know, in the financial sector um, to uh, to cut. Um, and then provinces uh, who will demand uh, turf wars, um, pressures on um, you know these compensatory uh, measures um, for uh, home heating oil and other things that is not cheap. Um, this is a this is a balancing act. And of course, the biggest thing that the liberals were going to want to do is um, shore up their own support, which is flagging. Um, of course, last time they tried to do that with a major event uh, known as the cabinet shuffle. That didn't work. Uh, it may not be correl correlation versus causation, but it's uh, since. Uh, since uh, Sean Fraser became housing minister, that their uh, that Pierre Polyev has soared, and uh, Trudeau's party has uh, tanked. So there are going to be a lot of pressures uh, coming every which way. Um, you know, if there is a magic bullet to fix all these in uh, Christopher Freeland's uh, 
full economic update, uh, well, that'll be impressive. Uh, oddly, though, uh, this may be a banner year for housing starts. If you look at the numbers you're seeing from some of the banks, like that uh, the TD put out a report last month that housing starts are 20% above pre-pandemic levels. So houses are getting built. Whether people can afford them, I don't know. But, uh, Supriya, just to go back to, to the point that, that Andrew made, we're seeing a lot more of Christian Freeland lately than we've seen uh, over the last year or so, um, weekly, you know, regular press conferences. Uh, Andrew's point about is there a message for, for watch, uh, is there an audience for the message she's delivering right now? Who do you think they're trying to reach? Who do you think is listening to the liberals at this point? Well, I think there's a good chunk of the electorate that has simply tuned out um, for all sorts of various reasons. So I think, you know, Andrew is right that there are, it's increasingly hard to get the folks to listen when the government has something to say, but that doesn't mean it's futile or it's it's just an uphill sort of thing. So I think you got, need to carve together um, and know who your audiences are in terms of who your message is, is trying to reach. And I think for one segment, at least, and again, I, I, I hate to harp on this, but like one segment that I think they should be talking to are are younger folks, um, you know, folks with younger families that are uh, that not only see the benefit of things like the Canadian child, the, the Canada Child Benefit, um, but the uh, carbon tax rebate um, that they receive, but also will care to know that uh, the federal government is making some, you know, good progress on the housing file, and that the fact that the Housing Accelerator Fund exists to begin with um, is because there are far too many provincial governments. Um, in this country that are okay with sitting back and, and doing nothing and, and seem to only really care about housing when they can try and pin the blame um, on another level of government, whether that's the feds or whether that's a municipality in question. So, so James, I don't know uh, which parts of the electorate will, will be listening on Tuesday, but we know the markets will be watching. We know the Bank of Canada will be watching to see if fiscal policy and monetary policy will be uh, rowing in, in the same direction. What, what do you think uh, Christian Freeland needs to put in her budget to reassure people down the street from here at the Bank of Canada and people on Bay Street? Well, I mean, Tiff Macklin has fired the warning shot in the night, right? He said he's going to be watching this with effectively a political statement saying if, if the government puts forward increased spending pressures, then that means there will not be a relief on interest rates from the Bank of Canada, which means that Canadians who are, who are seeing about two-thirds of Canadians in the next two years with uh, fixed rate and variable rate mortgages who will be renegotiating those mortgages between now and the end of 2024 we will not see any relief for the five years after that if they're on a fixed rate uh, mortgage. So uh, this is a, an incredibly important moment, not only in the fiscal update, but also in the budget next year to send a signal that sanity is back, that they've, they've understood uh, Supriya's message there about young people wanting to get into the housing market and not getting crushed by choosing and having the opportunity to do so. So ease up on the spending, get back to some fiscal sanity so the Bank of Canada can stop crushing people with high interest rates, with high mortgage rate loans that are making it impossible for people to plan for the future and even think about retirement because they're being crushed by this increased cost burden of owning a home. So I hope they're listening to the sane voices and the real voices uh, of Canadians who are feeling the real cost pressures as a result of inflation and the knock-on impact of, of increased uh, um, interest rate hikes. So Andrew, sanity is back. What does that look like in a fall economic <laughs> statement? Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, I suspect what it is is uh, more of a, a message of, of caution. Uh, certainly there's got to be a, motion, a message of hope in there. Uh, but more importantly for this government, there's got to be clarity of how they're going to deliver on some of this. Right now, there are big numbers floating around, but nobody's really seeing the housing starts. Nobody is moving into a new house that's been made affordable because of the Liberals' uh, endeavors. 
They've got a bit of room uh, to run on that. There's a little bit of time left, obviously, within the mandate. But uh, those are the pieces that I think people are really looking for. What are the tangible uh, measures that are going to be announced that are actually going to make life more affordable today? Mm. Uh, to Priya's point, I don't know that anybody believes that the Conservatives uh, will come in and pull away the child benefit. So, I mean, the money that's gone into that, I think, is pretty much baked in, and they're pretty much safe regardless of, uh, of how they vote on where that is. The carbon tax, I think most people would rather not pay it than have it rebated. And so there's a lot of these issues where the Liberals have a, uh, uh, you know, a, a good line to be able to speak, but again, I don't know that it actually resonates in terms of what voters are expecting or that the new programs that they're putting in place are really going to deliver results at a point where people go, yeah, this is great, I really benefited from that. So, so Jason, just as a last point, uh, help young people buy a house, show to the markets and the Bank of Canada fiscal sanity is back, and make enough progress on pharmacare that Jagmeet Singh doesn't pull the plug on the confidence and supply agreement. It sounds like an easy Tuesday for, for Christian Freeland. Absolutely. And I also look forward to hearing the defense hawks if they wind up uh, taking a big cut out of, spend, out of defense spending, uh, as it seems like they might. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.